The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, thank you this morning as we come to the scriptures and we come to this time. Would you engage our hearts and our minds now? Would you fill my words with anointing and power? Would you take the scriptures and make them come alive to us? Because we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We're in our second week in our preaching series called The Game of Life. Last week we we began to lay a foundation, and that foundation is going to be woven through each of the weeks uh, in which we uh, speak and as we go through. The, the foundation lands in Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verse 10. I came that you might have life. Everybody say life. life. I came that you might have life and have that life in abundance or have that life abundantly. Jesus tells us that his purpose in coming is to give us life. Yes, forgiveness is the avenue through which that life comes. But our life is more than just forgiveness. He has come to bring God's life to us, God's presence to us, God's kingdom to us, into our lives now. And he calls this eternal life. It is an unfortunate thing that so many people think of eternal life or everlasting life as being what happens later, after our bodies stop working and we go to be with him up there in the good place, that's not what he's talking about. Now, it does include that. Make no mistake. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying there isn't a heaven. There isn't the presence of God forever. But he makes it clear that he came in order to bring up there, down here, into our lives. Where we live, in your sphere of influence, where you hang out. So that, yes, this morning is a set-apart time, but all of life, as we'll see in just a few minutes, is part of his active activity in your life, his presence. He wants to take up there, bring it down here in your life, and we want to connect it this week with work. And why is that? Well, because we'll spend, the average person, about 90,000 hours working, right? That must mean if he came to give us life, he came to give more than just the hour we spend on Sunday mornings. This is an important hour, but you spend 90,000 hours, and some of you even more than that, working throughout 
the course of your life. That your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, personally, I started working over 37 years ago at the age of 12. You can do the math, figure out how old I am. My first job, I was an entrepreneur. I lived next to a golf course. And so um, I would go into the ponds and I would go into the woods and I would find all the golf balls that people lost. And the good ones I would clean up and I'd go out on the tee boxes and I would sell golf balls. And I was making a killing. I was killing it. So the, the golf club got uptight about that because I think I was out selling them, frankly. And they chased me off multiple times, but they couldn't get rid of me because I'm stubborn and I'm persistent and I was making a killing. So the manager of the golf club, being a wise man, thought, if you can't beat him, hire him. And so they hired me, not to sell golf balls, but to clean golf carts. And I got to be the range picker. Now, some of you know what a range picker is. Anybody know? Yeah, a few of you. The range picker is the guy who drives the golf cart around out on the driving range, picking up the golf balls. Now, think about that. I was 12. This was before labor laws, I think. (laughs) And my job was to drive a golf cart go fast, at least in my mind, and avoid danger because everybody was trying to hit the guy driving the golf cart, right? And those were in the days before there was protective covering. So to take a hit was really, I mean, it could be detrimental. It was a fantastic job. I didn't care that I was losing money on the deal. I was loving it. I wonder if you remember your first job. Maybe, maybe you babysat or... Uh, you worked in a grocery store. You had a paper route. Uh, a person out of the, ele- uh, the 8 o'clock service this morning told me his first job was as a brick carrier for a brick mason. Now, that's a first job, right? I mean, come on. And he learned he never wanted to do that for a living, so he went ahead and went on to college. Right? Think about your first job. Do you remember it? Why is it that so much of our life involves work? Why is that? Even starting young, it, it surely has to be more than what the bumper sticker tells us. I owe, I owe. It's off to work I go. It's got to be more than just living for the weekend or living to make more than your neighbor or to have an early retirement. That narrative of I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go is too small. There's no purpose in that. There's no meaning in that beyond self. And if you've ever traveled the road of self for long, you find out, oh, that's an empty road. It promises a lot, but it never actually gives life. The Bible has a much more profound and robust narrative for our lives when it comes to work. The reason that work is so prominent is because God designed us. God designed you and God designed me to be workers. Look at the the reading there from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 there in your scripture sheet. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female He created them and God blessed them. We're created as males and females in the image of God. 
And here's the thing. God is a worker. Genesis 1.1, the very first verse of God's self-revelation of his unveiling who he is, the unknowable God making himself known. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the start of time and space, God is creating. Yes, God existed beyond and outside of it in eternal life, for God himself is eternity. But as you see him entering in, the first thing he shows us is that he creates, he works, he shapes, he molds, he's an architect, he's a maestro, he's a poetic namer of things. God is a creator. And so we who are created in the image of God also are creators and shapers and developers and designers and poets and artists and all the various ways that work can occur in our lives. Why? Because he is, so we also are. Genesis 2.15, the very last verse in that section from Genesis, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. The design was that we would affect the world. How? Through our work done in concert with God, in cooperation with God, shaping, designing, affecting the world with God. Now, I think it's really important for us who work, and all of us either work or will work or have worked at some point along the way, for all of us to understand that the order of things is important. What I mean by that is the fall of humanity, the fall of creation comes in Genesis 3, right? Somebody say, yes, it does. Genesis chapter 3, but it's in chapter 1 and 2 that we see God designing mankind to work. And so what that means is that work is not part of the curse. The curse comes as a result of mankind's rebellion against God, saying, we'll do it our own way. And the logical consequence of that is that it affects everything. Relationship with God, our relationship with each other and with other people, and the things that are designed within us, including work. And so toil and sweat and difficulty and struggle, the grueling nature of work, the anxiety that it often produces, the ineffectiveness of it at times in our life, the pressure to get more and more out of a reluctant nature, that's part of the fall. That's part of the fall. That's how the fall affects or curses work. But work itself is designed, and it's a blessing. Do you see that? Very important to get that foundational framework in your thinking. If you're going to see what you do as more than I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I go. We are created to work. Say that. We're created to work. And here's the thing. Very equally important. Work is sacred. Work is sacred. Now, that might sound strange because you're thinking, but, but I'm an administrator. How is that sacred? Or you might be thinking, I don't know, I sell houses. How is that sacred? Or some of you are going, I'm a lawyer. <laughs> I know, lawyers, you guys take a beating, don't you? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and his life is in you, then everything that you have and you do can become sacred. 
Now, we're Western, educated, influenced in our thinking. And Western thinking tends to be it's either or. But the Bible is an Eastern book. The Bible is a both and kind of book. Oh, it includes either or, right? You see all sorts of things. You're either righteous or unrighteous. You're either good or evil. There are those kind of binary categories, but it's a both and kind of book. We tend to think dualistically as though there are sacred things, right? What would sacred things include? Well, going to church, going to our life group, praying, studying the Bible, serving and going on mission, sacred things. And we divide a line and say, and then there are the secular things, right? Those things like going to work and our hobbies and our play, our health and our fitness and our finances and shopping. The Bible doesn't know anything about that kind of thinking. And it never paints that as a narrative of our lives. For a Christ follower, everything, everybody say everything. Everything comes, becomes an arena or a sphere of influence for your spiritual life. It looks a lot more like this. It's more like a circle. A circle of sacred that comes out of you because of who is living within you. And it affects what you do in every sphere. So that technically, Sunday morning and Monday morning are no less sacred than one another. And that's a big mind shift Because we go, well, I do my sacred thing on Sunday in order to go do my secular thing on Monday. No, no, no. We come together to worship and to be encouraged, to be taught, to give thanks and praise, to taste and see that the Lord is good in order that we can go be the presence of Christ on Monday. And Sunday afternoon and Tuesday in that staff meeting you're tired of that you do week in and week out. And when you're in carpool line, when you're a student studying for an exam, life is much more like a circle so that all things in life, including your work, can be an avenue for the presence of God because of you and because of who he is in you and through you. That's why we include Ephesians. You can pull that down if you want. We include Ephesians. Take a look at Ephesians 6. We put this in here intentionally. And and some of you got thrown off by this reading. I'll explain that in just a minute. I'm just going to read Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. All right, now let me just say this is not part of the message, but it's important we come to this text. Paul is not advocating slavery. Okay? Everybody say, Paul's not advocating slavery. Okay, that would be a very shallow and probably a, a very... Uh, ethnocentric reading of this text. You've got to remember, it was Christians in the 18th and 19th century who read the Bible and went, we've got to get rid of slavery because of the value of life and the fact that Christ redeems and he's come to rescue us from all the evils of bondage of sin and of death there is, including slavery. Okay, so, so hear that. The Bible actually led people to get rid of slavery. 
Paul is writing into the context in which he was living. And at that time in the first century of the world, guys, there were only a couple of types of people. There were the very poor and there were the very rich. And then there were bond servants. Bond servants weren't a middle class. The very poor could end up in debt and would have to sell themselves in order to pay off their debts. They ended up working them off. Anybody, either the poor or the rich, could become a slave because at that time, particularly, countries ran over other countries and anybody in the country that lost, guess what you became? A slave. So that probably at this time, 40 to 50% of the population of the world was in some form of slavery. As Paul is writing to bond servants and to masters, he's just writing into life as it is. Because the scripture and the presence of God is to meet us in life as it is. Whether it's good or bad or it's corrupt, like in this case. And so Paul's writing to these folks and he's saying almost the same thing to them. Yes, he's expounding more on the first than the second. As he says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. He's talking about being worshipful, not of the masters, but of whom? Of Christ, of God, whom they serve, who has come and given them a new life with a sincere heart, just as you would Christ. Whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. Serve the Lord, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. You're serving Christ. You're doing it for Christ. Suddenly, it, if, you, if you get a hold of that, I'm created to work, and all things can become sacred if Christ is in me. Suddenly, even the most dreary job, like being a bondservant, can be an avenue of worship and an avenue for up there to come down here. Yeah, there's, that's good news. Is that good news? And you go, but you don't understand how bad this job is. I've been in a few of those. I, I, I did roofing work in Jacksonville, North Carolina in the summer. You talk about a job that felt like you were about three inches from hell. Physically, I mean, it was hot. I, I worked my way through college, and I was a painter, and I, I worked with this guy named Mousy. Mousy was not a Christian, and when he found out that I was, he gave me a hard time. I mean, every day, day in and day out, it was constant digs. Why? Well, because he was mad at God, but he was taking it out on me. But at the end of the summer, you know what Mousy said? Mousy said, you're the hardest worker I've ever seen. I said, Mousy, that's because I serve Jesus. He had an opportunity through what I did to see who God was. It doesn't mean you have to tell everybody you do it for Jesus, but he saw it. He knew it. He's like, he couldn't tear it down out of me. Why? Because I wasn't working for him. I was working for Christ. I was working to be an avenue of up there to be down here as I was painting houses, as I was interacting with these folks who, and they were salty types. I guess I might have been a salty type too. You can be a salty type for Jesus. Martin Luther said this. 
the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she sings a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. God is actually vastly interested in what we do. And it can become sacred if we take him into it. And we reflect the kingdom of God up there in what we do, in how we treat people. You want to throw your whole workplace off. Anybody got a tough employer person you work with? I mean, there's one, right? She works with me. (laughs) I know there are a few of you. You want to, you want to, you know, Jesus said, look, it's easy to do good to people that you like. Even sinners do that. Why not do good to the people that are really challenging to life? The boss who's almost unpleasable, that coworker who drives you bananas. You know the guy three rows over in the cube near the window? Why not bring the influence of heaven there? Not by being churchy and religious and having a cross on everything, but by doing good work, by being kind. Jesus said, love God with all your heart and your mind and your will and your strength. Where do we do that? Only here on Sunday morning? No, we do that primarily out there in our real life where we spend most of our time, 90,000 hours in which you can love God. And how do you do that best? By loving those neighbors of yours, by treating them with honor and integrity and compassion and mercy. By, By just, if you're a salesperson, be a good salesperson. If you're a teacher, be a good teacher. If you're a student, well, be a good student, not because you're afraid of not getting in to the college you want to go to or to grad school or of not getting a good job, but because you love God and you serve Him. And that will have an effect. It'll affect you and it'll affect other people as well. This life that Jesus has come to tell us about It's meant to be lived every day, in and out, in the way we treat people, in the way we speak to people, in the way we act with people, not in an uptight way out of fear, but in reverence. (laughs) In reverence for the one we love, who's done everything to forgive us and make us his own, to take up residence in us, so that through us, people might see our good deeds And glorify God who is in heaven. It's not just to get a raise, y'all. Nothing wrong with raises. Nothing wrong with advancement. But if that's all you're working for, that will get empty at some point. Because it's too small a story. It's not part of the design that God has given it. Now, let let me say one little thing here. If you're no longer employed because you are retired, the Bible knows nothing of retirement either. Which doesn't mean you got to go back and get a job. It just means that the sphere of your influence changes. So that it isn't in that place you go to from 9 to 5 or 8 to 12 or, you know, wherever that is. But all of life is still the sphere of his influence for 
you to love him and to love others, for you to bring up there, down here, up there, down here, up there, where? Down here, down here. There's a story about Sir Christopher Wren, who was an English architect, very famous. He was supervising construction over St. Paul's Cathedral in London many years ago. And there was a journalist who was interviewing. He's just kind of studying what was going on. He thought he would interview the workers. And so he went to three people and asked them, what is it you're doing? And the first one said, I'm cutting stone for 10 shillings a day. The second one said, I'm putting up uh, with this mess for 12 hours a day to get a pay. And the third one said this, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren construct one of the most beautiful temples in the world, and I'm doing it for the glory of God. That is a person who understands not only that they were made to work, but that our work is sacred when we bring Christ with us in all that we do. So let's apply it for just a minute before we wrap up. If you're a business owner, tomorrow, this afternoon, each day this week, why not yield your business to Christ? I don't mean just pray, oh God, I need to make enough money to pay my employees. That's not a bad prayer. I've prayed that prayer before. But oh God, how do you want me to serve you? How do you want this business to glorify you? And that doesn't mean it has to be all Christian, right? With crosses on your shoes, so to speak. Might include that, but it probably doesn't. How do you want me to do this well? How do you want me to yield this to you and begin to learn to listen for his ways in your business? Why? Well, because he's more creative than you are. He might have some ideas about things that actually would not only bless you and potentially be lucrative, but would bring his influence to a lot of people around you. If you've got to go and, and hit a time clock tomorrow, right, and you're, you're sort of dreading those hours, well, why not invite Christ to be in the midst of it? Jesus, how can I worship you today? What would it look like for me to do really good accounting? Right? Jesus loves numbers that work out. He came up with them. What would it look like for me today to have you in the midst of my work, in the midst of my job, and start listening for the creative ways that he wants you to do that? I read about a man who uh, is a manager of a moving company. And he said, you know, I know that in the midst of moves, people are often at their most vulnerable. Many times they've gone through a divorce, and so they're dividing things up and going different directions. Often they're usually moving to places that are new for them. They don't know who's packing their things. They don't know if it's going to arrive on the other end. And he said, I can be the presence of Christ for them in the midst of not only assuring that we move them well, but that I can bring peace in the midst of a not peaceful situation. Think about where you live and work tomorrow and ask him, How do you want to enter into this for your glory that the world might know that you're good? Let's pray. Lord, would you let up there come down here through us in really normal ways, supernatural ways, 
because you love people. Because we're created to work. Lord, we want to yield to you that false view, that dualistic view of life. The sacred and the secular. And just say, yes, it's all sacred. Jesus, let this be so. We pray this in your name. Amen.